This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee, where the governor has decided the kids will not be going back to school on May 4th after all. The class of 2020 will finish the school year in the virtual realm. We'll hear from Ron DeSantis and the president of the Florida Education Association about that decision. The governor's also decided to reveal more information about the COVID-19 problem in nursing homes and senior living centers. It's been discovered in more than 300 of those facilities. The state's unemployment rate went from 2.8% to 4.3% in March, but that does not include hundreds of thousands of Floridians who could not get through the phones or the web portal to file a claim. So it's really not an accurate reflection of just how bad things really are right now. At some point today, the governor says he'll be announcing the members of a new task force on economic rebounding and resurgence of Florida after the pandemic. They hope to have a short-range plan done by the end of the week. Beaches in Jacksonville and St. John's County have reopened, where officials have imposed time limits and insist on social distancing in the sand. However, pictures of people returning to the beach led to a new trend on Twitter over the weekend. Hashtag Florida morons. On the Sunrise interview, we remember Matthew Gotha, who passed away Saturday at the age of 36. Our guest is State Representative Chip Lamarck of Broward County. We'll also have your political calendar of events and two Florida man stories that revolve around golf carts. Well, what else? And now, the top stories on Sunrise for Monday, April 20th. First, the numbers. As of last night, the state health department was reporting 26,314 confirmed cases of COVID-19 and a total of 774 fatalities, including 48 who died over the past 48 hours. But there may be a light at the end of the proverbial tunnel. A coronavirus model by the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation suggests the state actually passed the peak for new deaths back on April 2nd when 77 people died and that Florida's final death toll will be under 1,400. That's significant. The previous estimate was more than 4,700 fatalities. Florida kids will not be going back to class for the remainder of the school year. Governor Ron DeSantis made it official on Saturday. Insert Ron DeSantis, rest of school year. DeSantis made the announcement in the historic Capitol building, a place we audio folk like to call the official echo chamber of state government. It was just a consultation. We had consulted with folks, and I think that there was a sense of, okay, we obviously weren't going to do it on May 4th, so it would have been probably the last couple weeks of May. We were doing the distance learning. Academically, would there have been a huge benefit? And I think most people thought not. Now, look, I'm sensitive to, I mean, a lot of our kids haven't seen friends for a while. Uh, so this has had social uh, a cost to it, and I want to f- figure out a way to overcome that. I think in the next phase, uh, I think kids will have a little bit more, more to be able to do. But I think there was just logistical things. I think you had kind of a division amongst folks uh, whether this was a good idea or not. And I think the last thing you want to do is like force everyone in school and have half the kids not show up because their parents didn't want to have teachers not want to do it. Um, so I think I was, it was easier decision for me to make knowing that we've done so well with the distance learning. You have huge participation. Uh, Florida's worked very hard to be a leader on that. We have folks all over the country watching what we're doing. So I felt that that was was a good thing. The teachers union and the PTA had called on the governor to delay the return to classrooms and continue with virtual learning for the last few weeks of the school year. So the governor's announcement was welcome news to Florida Education Association President Frederick Ingram. What I wanted uh, to insist to the governor and to all lawmakers uh, and policymakers, superintendents, school board members, uh, that uh, we should lead uh, and be guided by the safety of our students and those uh, th- those people who have dedicated their lives to uh, educating those students. And if we could not uh, ensure uh, the safety and well-being 
uh, and health of each person who walked into our public schools, then it would be uh, um, uh, haphazard of us to move forward with trying to open the school even in the last two to three weeks, given the fact that we know that education is paramount, it's important, uh, we want our kids back at school. Uh, we could not ensure uh, job number one, and that's to uh, bring our kids home safe uh, and, and keep our families uh, healthy. Were you watching Saturday when the governor made the announcement? Yes, yes, sir. Your reaction? So uh, my reaction was, you know, that the governor has heard the voices of those people who are concerned about our public schools and our children. I thank him uh, for his his for for his leadership decision. Uh, I think it was made in a very timely manner, uh, given the fact that you know parents need to plan, our educators need to plan. We all need to know exactly what's coming uh, for this end of the school year. Um, it is it, it is a it's not a happy moment. Uh, but it's, it's certainly not a sad moment. Uh, you know, we, we have students that will, you know, my 14-year-old, uh, my 14-year-old was devastated on Saturday. I had to go into her room and say, hey, uh, your eighth grade year is, is in essence over physically. Um, you're going to finish the rest of the school year online. And her response to me was gut-wrenching. It was like, what do you mean? We're not going back to school. I'm not going to see my friends before I go to high school. Um, and so that's what uh, is compounded in this conversation. But at least it gives us time now to do some explaining, to do some more educating, uh, to let the kids know that we care about them, we're here with them, and we're all in this together. Florida sort of went through a crash course on virtual schooling here. How do you think it's been working out? So I think it's a mixed bag. Um, uh, first of all, I have to give kudos to our teachers and our educators. They have, in three and a half weeks, been asked to uh, reorganize, re-engineer, and rethink the way that they uh, do uh, uh, their teaching and learning. And so kudos to them uh, because they've had to uh, do all of that and assure the success of our students. Uh, our students, as you know, will always rise to the level of expectation. And so to the extent that we can, uh, we are doing what we can to educate our kids. Uh, there are still some inequities uh, as it relates to online education. Uh, there are many students uh, who live in what we call digital deserts who don't have uh, connectivity, who don't have the software or the hardware at home, who don't have... Uh, you know, people to assist them uh, when something goes wrong. And so we're working through that. Uh, this is something that no one, uh, you know, saw that was in our future. And so as we go through these things, I think it has really highlighted uh, where we need to help our students most as we go back, and it gives us some building blocks towards the future. I guess the other question I had was what happens with summer school now? I mean, not everyone has to attend it, but, but it, it is a pretty much a typical feature, isn't it? You know, I, I'm going to go back to something that I heard uh, Dr. Fauci from the federal government, uh, the lead doctor on infectious diseases, say the, uh, the virus will dictate uh, in its own timeline what we do uh, as it relates to school or, or anything else in terms of opening. And so what I want to say about uh, summer school is absolutely we will be uh, uh, trying to make sure that our governor and our lawmakers know that teachers want to get back and they want students not to go into this summer slide. Uh, but we are only willing to do that uh, if we have this virus under control, if we can test our students, if we can maintain the health and safety of our public schools. And so that's what's most advantageous for us. Uh, I think we still need to uh, keep that as our issue number one. Uh, education, um, you know, what I want parents to know is that it's going to be okay and that what they're doing is enough. Our teachers will get control of the academic success of our kids whenever that time 
uh, comes. Let us uh, make sure that we value every child. Let us make sure that we value uh, our health care system. And then uh, allow our teachers to do the magic that they always do. Parents, you're doing enough. Uh, our students will be where they're going to be because they're supposed to be there, and we will take it from there uh, whenever that time comes. For weeks now, the governor's been talking about transparency during the pandemic, but actions speak louder than words. When all this began more than a month ago, the state health department refused to reveal the number of COVID-19 cases in each county, so reporters complained, and eventually the governor ordered that information to be released. Then the health department and the Agency for Healthcare Administration refused to release the names of nursing homes with confirmed cases of COVID-19. That changed on Saturday when the governor ordered the names to be published. The number of positive cases associated with nursing homes and assisted living facilities is 1,627. Um, that includes residents and staff, and in some of these, the outbreak has affected the staff more. Um, and we obviously have huge amount of both staff and residents in the state of Florida, probably more uh, or just about as much as any other state. Um, one of the things that's come up is, you know, you have fatalities identified generally by county. What about individual counties and individual nursing homes? Um, you know, I told the Surgeon General from the beginning that we want to put as much information out um, as you can. Now, I don't think you should be identifying individual patients by name, uh, but at the same time, uh, just getting the information out, um, I think, is better. So, uh, and, and and he's done a lot. I think if you look at the reports, when people have asked to do more, when they asked for the racial and ethnic breakdown, that was added. There were some other things that have been added along the way. Um, but I have now directed him um, to determine uh, that it is necessary for public health uh, to release the names of the facilities where a resident or staff member has tested positive for COVID-19. Now, what had been done is as soon as there was a positive test, the facility was required to notify all the other residents, all the staff members, and all the families. And we have no reason to think that that wasn't done. We know it was done, you know, most of the time. But at the same time, you know, if you have one incident in a week from now and they don't follow through with that, I don't want to be in a situation where the families don't know. Uh, so that's going to be part of uh, what is put out uh, publicly. So they're working on doing that. And I think that I think that that'll be a positive step forward. Documents released by the state over the weekend show more than 300 of the 700 nursing homes and adult care facilities have confirmed cases of coronavirus. But as my colleague Scott Powers at Florida Politics points out, the information released on Saturday does not specify which or even how many cases or deaths might be attributed to any one center. Nor do the data reveal whether the infected people are residents or staff members. So what happens next? Ron DeSantis is focusing on his new task force that will come up with plans for Florida's economic rebound and resurgence. We're going to announce the members of the task force on Monday, uh, which will also be the first day that the group will meet by telephone. Task force will develop a three-stage approach to reopening the state, short-term, medium-term, and long-term. And we've always been looking medium and long-term in Florida, how we can do better. Some of that is probably going to be the same, but now with this situation, how can we use the, the back end of this and position ourselves for the most success going forward? So they're going to meet telephonically every day this coming week on the short-term strategy, and they're going to provide rec recommendations for me by the end of the week. Then, once we get that in place, they're going to look to the medium and long-term strategies, and uh, we want to see uh, people back to work uh, for the long haul, uh, and we want to continue with Florida's economic development strategy we had a lot of great irons in the fire before this hit, and we want to be able to get that uh, back going forward. 
Florida's unemployment rate jumped from 2.8% in February to 4.3% in March, but it will get worse much worse. That's because it only reflects what happened until the middle of March, which is when the layoffs and furloughs were just beginning. The unemployment rates for April will be the first ones to show the true impact on the job market in Florida. Next up on the Sunrise interview, State Representative Chip Lamarca joins us to talk about the untimely death of a political player who helped put Nikki Freed on the state cabinet. This is the Sunrise podcast from Florida Politics. Welcome back to Sunrise. Matthew Gotha died Saturday at the age of 36. Despite his young age, he was a player in South Florida politics and was a big part of Nikki Fried's successful campaign for agriculture commissioner, making her the only Democrat holding statewide office today. After the election, he served as her cabinet affairs director before signing on as a lobbyist with the Berman Law Group. State Representative Chip Lamarca was a Broward County commissioner when he met Gotha, who was chief of staff for another commissioner at the time, and he has fond memories of their work together. You know, Matt was an interesting, very interesting young guy, uh, I had the opportunity to work with him while he was the chief of staff to a fellow Broward County commissioner, colleague of mine, Mark Bogan. And um, Matt was always wanting to put people together based on getting things done, regardless of party or issue. And the ironic thing about Matt is he was a proud card-carrying Republican at the time when he worked on the fourth floor in Broward County. And there's not, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, folks outside of my office. Uh, that were in that situation, and uh, we, we saw each other at a couple of different events, whether it was Marco Rubio running for president uh, or other things. But Matt ultimately uh, worked real hard on uh, Nikki Fried's campaign and also uh, a lot of other local campaigns, and obviously his uncle, Skip Campbell, who was a state senator. Um, and then we really became friends while he was a member of uh, Mark Bogan's team at Broward County. Now, his history, he's, he has a lot of work for Democrats. He worked for, of course, you mentioned his uncle, Skip Campbell. Uh, he worked with Senator mm-hmm. Dave Ehrenberg um, and helped get Nikki Freed elected. But you say he was a GOP man, eh? For a bit. Uh, if you look him up right now, he's a, he's a registered Democrat. Um, and obviously, he worked for our Commission of Agriculture. And so I think I think uh, Matt was one of those unique people, especially from our county, that um, regardless of what registration was, he worked for people, not parties. And uh, you know, he just, uh, you know, sadly, last November, uh, I was proud to have him on a uh, host committee for my re-election with uh, Nick Matthews, who's also a card cam member of the Democrat Party, but uh, both two young men who I consider good friends, and we worked on a lot of issues together. And uh, it's, you know, it's just, yeah, he's, he was one of those interesting guys that was able to cross over um, from political affiliations based on an issue. Uh, do you think there's anything in particular he'll be remembered for? You know, I, I hope that uh, Matt will inspire young political, uh, politically uh, interested uh, college students or even in post-college to get involved with people, even if they, number one, volunteer, number one, you know, get involved in a campaign or, or an issue. But don't always, you know, write someone off based on if they're not in your same political party or, or you think they have this exact same ideology, because if you believe strongly in an issue, and Matt was one of those people that um, believed in, for example, his his uh, last uh, work position uh, was with Renew Financial, and we worked together with uh, another former, uh, actually, district director of mine, Kate Westner, who worked for Wygrain, and Matt worked for uh, Renew, two different companies, but they worked together on the issue to make sure that people have access to uh, property access, clean energy, and to be able to, to use the PACE program with their homes. You know, I, I would just say that, look, this... this Friday, you know, my one of my dearest friends and a 
and a former uh, employee of mine, a district director who is in the private sector now, was a former Marine and just a great political guy. Ryan Ryder was a dear friend of, of Matt's and of mine, and he was he's how I found out what happened. And as, as is as is the norm, Ryan Ryder is such a uh, unique and remarkable remarkable individual that uh, he was the person who went to to find him and try to save. Uh, uh, Matt and unfortunately uh, he was the one that found him when uh, at his untimely death and uh, I just look I I think loyalty and 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 friendship is something that's that's uh, true friendship is very rare in politics and people like Matt and Ryan Ryder are you know the, the type of people we need to have more of and if you know if we can inspire young folks to get involved in politics and be more like Matt Gotha uh, we'll have a better system coming up. Your calendar of events today starts at 10 o'clock. That's when the Florida Electrolysis Council will hold a conference call. Qualifying begins at noon for candidates in this year's congressional and judicial races. Republicans Ted Yoho in District 3 and Francis Rooney in District 19 are not running for re-election, so those seats are wide open. Florida Board of Osteopathic Medicine is holding a conference call at 1 this afternoon. State Representative Javier Fernandez of South Miami and Miami-Dade County Commissioner Daniela Levine-Cava will provide updates about the COVID-19 during an online event at 2. The Seminole State College of Florida Board of Trustees and the Tallahassee Community College Board of Trustees will meet separately and remotely at 2. And two Orlando lawmakers, Senator Linda Stewart and Representative Amy Mercado, will be holding an online meeting about COVID-19 and food assistance beginning at 4. Finally, it's time once again for the adventures of Florida Man, who seems to have a serious problem with golf carts. A Florida man has been arrested for GCUI, golf carting under the influence. A Sumter County deputy spotted 52-year-old Alfred Matthew tooling down Highway 27 in a green Yamaha golf cart. And when the officer stopped to ask for ID, Matthew gave him a key card for the gated community where he lives. According to the arrest report, the guy's blood alcohol level was .339. A search also revealed three unopened bottles of vodka in the golf cart's trunk area. He was arrested on charges of driving under the influence and driving without a valid license. Finally, an elderly Florida man faces criminal charges after deputies say he pointed a gun at a group of golfers in Flagler County. 74-year-old John Orr told officers he was upset because the men violated course regulations by driving their golf cart across a wooden bridge that was meant for pedestrians. No shots were actually fired. In fact, it wasn't even a real gun. It was a BB gun. But the charges are real enough. Seven felony counts of aggravated assault. One of the golfers even recorded a cell phone video of Orr pointing the gun in their direction. That's it for today's episode of Sunrise. I'm Rick Flagg in Tallahassee, inviting you to join us again tomorrow as we plumb the depths of Florida politics.